Welcome back to Reel It In. Uh, my name is Joe Messina, and we are coming back with our guest, Mr. Webb, uh, as he is known, um, because we we enjoyed having him so much the first time, and we felt like the conversation was not complete. So he's back with us, and uh, I will let my... Um, uh, compadres uh introduce themselves right yeah i'm dan sapin the guy talking behind me who should be talking in front of me is martin go ahead martin no you you go ahead you go that's martin Hallberg, <laughs> my buddy in sweden i'm dan sapin i'm a psychologist in new york i'm here with my dear old friend dr webb garrison i'm very happy to have back very happy to be here was I supposed so to say Mr. something else? <laughs> 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 yeah. Mr. Webb. I like that. I like that introduction. Mr. Webb. Yeah. Like a mystical. What's he called? Or a share. Matrix. Uh, Anderson. Right. Huh? Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. Webb has agreed to walk us through some, some ideas and topics around the intersection of, of what did we say? Like science and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember us ending the last episode on a spiral kind of image. So that's quite yeah. interesting. Uh, that could be an idea to go back and forth into these different discourses or, or uh, modes of thought or however one would conceive of them. Um, and yeah, last time around, we had a very, very deep and, and rich conversation. Uh, I also remember us talking about consciousness being, trying to visualize it or somehow... Um, uh, talking about it in in shapes and forms and was it a tunnel or or uh, I can't I can't remember but but where do we jump off today yeah it was actually it was a spiral yeah. was it the it spiral was, yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah no I think you you're absolutely right Martin when you you had uh, asked what was that that main theme we left off on and we got more and more into spirals mm-hmm. um, which is an an image I love just for the for me the most um, uh, basic meaning of for me just sort of being able to circle around the same perception the same phenomenon but from a higher perspective each time you know the idea that that somehow there's something circular circular to our ideas and our experience but we gain in perspective each time Mm -hmm. so you picture the upward moving spiral and the downward moving as we come to a closer scope with things that's what I was left with. That's a good, yeah. good, good wrap up. Or, um, and also how, how it could go both upwards and downwards. Uh, I mean, it could be a matter of, of focus, like you said, from a micro perspective to a higher, but it could also be a direction in terms of, you know, libidinal drive or, or you know, going out towards something or closing in. Because uh, I remember Joe talking about this Japanese comic or something where where the husband was kind of, or one of the two was, was very much into getting to know everything, like obsessed with ideas almost to the point where it ruined things for him. Um, yeah. And his wife yeah, was, uh, was afraid to touch the spiral or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So they, like one by one, sort of this whole town became obsessed with spirals. Um, and you know, it was revealed that it was some kind of force that was that was overtaking them, and it was like the husband became obsessed, like uh, in a you know, um, uh, like a 
an addiction almost to spirals. Mm. And then once um, they lost him, the wife became like um, just deeply averse to them and was obsessed with like getting rid of spirals. Um, and eventually the whole town just becomes spiraled basically. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's a very, I, re I read another one of his um, series and uh, yeah, it's all very like absurdist and, and uh, dark. Um, also kind of funny and, uh, and cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Junji. Why Ito. spirals? In general. Overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I look. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that that I had mentioned, um, one of the ways that I think of spirals, really is as representing a dialectic. Also, you know, they 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 can be, you know, if you think about what a spiral does, just in in its motion, whether outward and inward, it 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 kind of returns to the same point, but at a slightly different relationship from that point, and. You know, and as it's, it's either expanding inward or outward, there are extremes. So the whole thing with dialectic is that you have a thesis or an idea, then you have the, the antithesis, the opposite of the idea, and the synthesis. And so in a way, the motion of the spiral is the, the synthesis itself. You know, the, 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 so the, the spiral, just like yin and yang, you know, you see yin and yang when people get it tattooed on themselves and it's a static object, but in reality, it's a dynamic moving symbol it's not a static symbol you know and so in a way a spiral represents the the polarities as well as the integration of the polarities that's way, one way of, of, of that's one way that i understand it and then i think of yates you know mm -hmm. then i think of yates you know the widening of the um widening gyre the gyre yeah and that's all about you know the center not holding and and you know kind of uh, us being uh, us losing our center almost as a as a species or the center of consciousness in a way yeah well yates was uh to the best of my knowledge very concerned with among other things world war one mm -hmm. um <clears throat> you know <clears throat> excuse me i'm sorry folks uh what is this dark beast it's our come around at last i forget the next line slouching toward bethlehem to be born mm -hmm. um and so you have the idea which works easily, uh, equally well for uh, a good or a bad um, outcome, new, new visitor. Uh, for him, it, it was something uh, destructive, kind of the Antichrist uh, was, I think, one of the images that, that he was struggling with. But one of the, <clears throat> sorry, folks, one of the reasons that gyre and its widening nature um, is important I think for us, uh, and, and as well as the meaning of a symbol, is that it helps free us from the idea that, that, that there is this circular, simply circular relationship, two dimensions, uh, that most of what people consider to be a symbol, you know, we have a couple of us, three of us have a Freudian, a heavy Freudian thing in our background. Uh, but most of what we're talking about uh, with respect to Freudian symbols are signs. I mean, this is this is kind of um, a, a psych 101 topic. The difference between, or linguistic anyway, the difference between an image, uh, you know, the thing you would call the symbol or the sign, uh, simply being a stand-in. You know, it's like you see the um, uh, the, the red hexagon at the end of the street. It may say stop on it. We know it's a sign. It's not meant to be interpreted. But 
most of the things we call symbols are really nothing but placeholders for Jung, who is a big deal for me, as I think we've made abundantly clear, as, as well as, uh, you know, we talk about uh, spirals, the idea of um, a, an, an ascending perspective, you know, that you go around the same point, but growing in meaning, growing in insight, um, you have the function of a symbol to point towards something you don't have yet, an understanding that's sort of on the way. There's a piece for Jung's also the transcendent function, the idea that if you have a problem, you, uh, there's an, a natural tendency to work that dialectic, uh, to, um, to approach a solution by going to something as yet unknown. You know, a third, um, other Freudians, post-Freudians, the uh, intersubjectivists, people we've talked about, um, also talked about the analytic third, the idea that there's the analyst, there's the patient, the analysand, and then there is this um, indescribable creature, which is kind of a, a, um, a uh, not a hybrid, but, but the combination of the analyst and the patient together are, uh, and the presence of that dyad in the room is a third person in there. Um, so the idea of the third, the thing it's a third that comes, aware, it's a a third awareness, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's a third person or a third awareness or a third form of consciousness. I mean, that, that, that becomes a semantic <clears> question, <throat> you know, but so I just thought I would throw that out there, you know, whether we're personifying that as a person or whether that third is simply kind of uh, 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 frequencies of consciousness that constellate in a certain way, you know? Yeah. And I think that, still, that's an, still, an important still sentient, point. still sentient, you know? Yeah. Something important about this, though, uh, which I think gets to the, the heart of, of what this means in psychology is, yes, we do use ideas of the third, uh, you know, as if they were real, as if, because in order to talk about their function, um, it, it, it pays to talk about the analytic third as if there was some hybrid, you know, some uh, third person uh it's a combination of the two participants but in a way uh i know one of the things that thomas ogden talks about regarding the analytic third was that that um combination the chimera in a way of analyst and analysis and has a different subjectivity than either the patient or the analyst himself that the coming together of two two unconsciouses both of which are mysterious and neither of which can predict what the other is going to say or want, um, makes it as though it were a whole separate person, a whole separate source of mystery. So we get, we have kind of an in-between. I think this connects us to the question of spirituality and science as well. What is this invisible person? Why bother talking about it in those terms? If science is so good, so uh, complete, um, then why bother with a mystical, uh, you know, indemonstrable phenomenon like that? Well, right. Well, look, science is not, I mean, just to, to repeat back what you said and to spin it a little bit, in terms of science being good and complete, you know, uh, science and, and spirituality or religion both have perpetrated the same errors uh, of logic. They've both made assumption in, assumptions in realms that, that it's not safe to make assumptions. So, you know, so the reality is that 
both science and spirituality and religion faces uh, mystery or uncertainty, okay? Just this morning, I was reading an article that a new study was done on, on plants, and I need to read this more carefully because I was waking up and it was kind of my morning grog. Uh, uh, but it's the first study that shows that, uh, that uh, genetic mutation appears not to be random. The assumption scientifically from the beginning of you know, uh, an awareness of mutation happening, the assumption has been that it is random. This study showed that there was a, a specific aspect of the plant that was mutating in a non-random way. It was protecting certain aspects of its genome as it mutated, which implies that it is non-random mutation. So that's an example of a, of a scientific assumption that has pervaded. So everyone's assuming, well, you know, mutation is random, mutation is random. And it has been accepted almost as a scientific fact. When the, when the, when, if you actually do the science properly, you cannot make that assumption that, that, that mutation is random. Now there is actually evidence that mutation is not random. So that flies in the face of what has, has largely been assumed by most people about genetics since, you know, what, for the last 150 years or hundred years, or, you know, however, however long, you know, they've been looking into this stuff, the original eugenic studies or whatever. So so, so, so anyway, and, and spirituality in the same way can make assumptions. I think last time we started talking about dogma, I am an anti-dogma person, okay? Uh, spirituality and religion can, can also presume to know what cannot be known. Um, and so, uh, so one of the things I know for myself as a practitioner, as a sentient being, as, as a spiritual person, and as a scientist, one of the things that's been very important for me uh, throughout the years has, has to try to maintain as clean an awareness of what I know and what I'm assuming um, or what I can know and what I have to be assuming, where the bounds of knowledge are, okay? That is one of the things that I think is actually a really critical uh, uh, element for both spirituality and, and science. Um, uh, neither, this whole, this whole uh, argument, you know, and now this argument, thankfully, is hackneyed and people aren't relying on it as much, but it's kind of like, well, if there's a God, prove it to me. Well, you know, that's not really a scientific perspective. You know, a scientific, a scientific perspective is not so much, you know, you need to prove it to me. You know, a scientific perspective now is more like we can rule things out. We can gather evidence, but, but also we have to be able to rule things out. So, yeah. uh, so, so again, this all points to this kind of fundamental mystery, this fundamental ambiguity that we face. Um, and, and again, it's been very important for me as a person, as a psychologist, as a spiritual person, uh, to know what I know and what I'm assuming and where the, where the differences are there. Absolutely. And there is a key point that, that the um, uh, false certainty of too many people who think they're being scientific or rational is also reflected in how uh, the same people who uh, like to, to invoke Occam's razor, that th really you don't need all of these spirits, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't need an unseen power, you don't need a, an ether permeating the cosmos in order, well, uh, Occam's razor is usually spoken of as being the simplest argument is probably the true one. Uh, or the simplest explanation. What Occam actually said boils down more accurately to the simplest explanation that accounts for all the data. And 
science shoots itself in the foot, personifying science and overgeneralizing, but that positivist mentality uh, that scoffs at the idea that there is an unseen force, an unseen variable, um, is taking it oddly on faith that whatever we're not seeing must therefore not be there. Mm -hmm. In which case it relies upon a selective avoidance of a bunch of data. Mm -hmm. So there's an awful lot of experience and conceptual and semantic uh, reason. Um, they're phenomena. People have experiences and they deserve to be, um, to be noted and thought about just as any other data. Uh, you know, the experience of thousands of years of, of mm, sentient sapient people um, is good enough indication that there's something there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at, at least that there is some importance to um, uh, the spiritual realm or, or zone of, of thought. Like it's, uh, yeah, it's not something to be written off um, when it, it seems to be a pretty important part of human society. Uh, and I think that uh, our our society, as much as we think we're science driven, I, I might argue that a little bit, but uh, it's, uh, there is like a, a, uh, a sort of rejection of um, something. <laughs> there's, there's been sort of a rejection of this, like the uh, like spirit realm and religion seems to be either just sort of cultural motions people go through or like a dogma like we talked about um and that's that's an interesting uh weird thing that's happened <laughs> martin what's going through your head i can almost yeah. hear the pulsing <laughs> energies uh, i don't know a lot of different things um but yeah, I think I agree with what I hear here being said in terms of something being avoided or repressed in a way. If one takes it, you know, the, let's say the scientific discourse, is, it's also visible in the relationship to, to things like nature as a concept, you know, where nature being there for man to understand, explore and extravagate and build stuff on and, you know, propel our technologies on. So there would be a certain rejection or avoidance of a certain fragility, maybe vulnerability, certain things in the human condition that I, I, I think, I, I believe the scientific discourse kind of represent the rejection of that, let's say, finality and vulnerability that comes with the human life. On the other hand, then the, the more kind of strongly knitted spiritual domain or religious domain would, I guess, do an inverse kind of proposition where, where nature is mother nature, she's alive, she's imbued with, with certain qualities that I can get to know as, as a part of a member in this religious community. And, you know, she speaks to me and there, there, is, a, there is an inverse kind of, uh, so, so if, if the scientific discourse would be rejecting kind of their vulnerability, I guess the religious discourse would in a way be 
projecting their their aggression or their their active agency in a way. Um, so I think that there is something playing out there that one can see also now in terms of COVID and different things in our in our everyday life. How these two camps kind of become more and more uh, engaged in like othering each other uh, and and you know painting the other as a complete idiot. So that that's what I was thinking, and I was also thinking something in terms of this analytic third and the integration of opposites that Webb spoke about when we discussed the spiral that there is a there is a the third position is inherently held in the spinal or in the yin yang movement uh, so i was thinking there in terms of how how this third position would be acknowledged or understood in what we're talking about now if, if science is extrapolated on one end some something religious on the other where is that third element and i guess that's what we're kind of exploring today um Last maybe it's a, um, maybe maybe it's an embodiment. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, like idea. you yeah. know, like j just. I mean, as a as a, I don't mean to be glib or quick to answer that, but you know, it might be. It might ultimately have to do with anchor being anchored in lived experience and direct yes. subjective lived experience and living in the tension between yeah. the subjective and the objective kind of. You know? Between. Yeah. Can I take a stab body, at this? Because you, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah. The role of the body there is is crucial i think and and uh, yeah i agree i like that intuitive hunch web i'll go with that embodiment whatever we land up on there but i'll shut up now look at um don't shut up martin that would be such a waste um i've been back on an, on a friedrich nietzsche kick lately for reasons i'm not sure about yet um but i think some somebody brought up Zarathustra recently. And uh, it brought me back to college. My, my college philosophy thesis uh, was built around the idea that um, round about the time of Kierkegaard and then Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, um, philosophers started to reflect a certain depression, uh, a certain almost mourning of something lost in the spiritual life, uh, that the intellect and science were unsatisfying. You know, they, they don't foster hope. They don't support anything that, that even approaches a wish for a better life or a transcendent knowledge that makes things better. Um, and so God, uh, the ultimate unknowable, um, became this source of fear and trembling. First, it was the rejection of authority and the rejection of expertise that for Kierkegaard, forget the church for, uh, you know, and there's relevance here to the anti-science, anti-elite, anti-government uh, 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 forces operating during this, well, really magnified during this pandemic. Um, you have Zarathustra as this spokesperson for, you have to remember Nietzsche was basically broke, uh, powerless, jobless, and living in his sister's attic, uh, you know, cold and starting to suffer from syphilis apparently when he was starting to write Zarathustra and things were already on their way in the will to power. And so for the will in the will to power, you have the notion that people are essentially driven by the desire for some kind of mastery, some, uh, some way to, to get a foothold in this earth where we have some of the, the divine oomph ourselves. But what do we end up doing? We project that 
uh, power into the sky uh, in the form of God, but a particular version of God, not a God that would be re recognized as such by any of the polytheistic uh, or even earlier monotheistic cultures, rather a God who is terrifying, a God who doesn't explain himself, a God who has ways and means and laws that he can change at any moment. Um, and so we then become subjugated to the very projection that we put out there because we felt powerless. And so we located the power out there. So what does Zarathustra do? Zarathustra is the Ubermensch. Or rather, is Zarathustra saying we need the Ubermensch? Pretty much, he was the Ubermensch, the the man who is going to overcome the weak, um, halfway there notions of previous uh, iterations of society. You know, when he says God is dead, it's not the last thing he says. He follows that up with essentially, now let's see what new gods are going to be created, and so. You take that into the 20th century and you get Sartre and Camus and Kafka. Boy, were those guys depressing. They were depressed. God, there is no God. There is no fundamental meaning to anything in life or the universe. There was a, there's a grieving going on. And um, yeah, something that brought it up was I was watching, if anybody has seen the movie Melancholia, I mentioned that to you, Martin. Have you seen that, Webb? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's something that would be a kick to all watch it together next time we have three hours to um, share a screen. Um, Kirsten Dunst plays this very depressed young woman who's getting married, really doesn't want to. She's you know probably bipolar, gets psychotic. And at the same time that she's acting out and her rich, insensitive, controlling family is trying to get her to behave there is a rogue planet that appeared from behind the sun that is heading straight for a flyby with Earth. And it's either going to be the, the utter destruction of Earth, or it's going to be the most glorious celestial apparition in the history of humanity. Um, and there comes a point in this film in which, um, you know, it becomes increasingly frightening, the apparition of this beautiful blue planet in the sky. Um, and, uh, Kirsten Dunst's depressed character becomes peaceful and grounded and uh, unconflicted while everyone else is freaking out. And at one unexpected moment in this film by Lars von Trier, who is not um, you know, a, a happy-go-lucky guy, um, the character says, I know things. And then she you know, has a few bits of psychic knowledge to prove that she knows truths from, you know, a, a higher place and um, tells her sister, you think that uh, we're, if we die, there are other life forms who at least will carry on the, the, the tradition of consciousness. No, I know things. There is no other life out there. It was us and only for a split second. And then nothing. And it got me thinking that here's another iteration of the notion that in a post-religious dogma world in which science keeps on failing to come up with things that give us hope, the kind of hope we're looking for anyway, um, that there is a real depression, uh, a, a kind of quiet, not so quiet despair 
on the part of people, uh, civilization on a large scale. And the notion that the authorities tell us what the law is, what the truth is. Scientists don't know crap, right? We're in an era now where people's hunches and common sense guide them because the dogma that comes from on high, whether it's spiritual, religious, um, legislative, none of it is to be trusted. Our gods have failed us and our representatives are phonies. And that I think is one of the reasons why this need for a higher position, for a better source is so important to us. Well, and, and unfortunately, I mean, I, I look, I think what you said is very profound, Dan. And I think that, you know, um, in terms of the postmodern movement and deconstructionism and, and kind of the, the, the broad, probably, you, you know, we could probably frame this as a grieving process within humanity. And what, what you're talking about is humanity being pushed into the depressive stage of grief. You know, um, what go, what, what's beyond that is acceptance. And I mean, in, at least in the, in the grieving process. And to me, you know, like, like the whole deconstructive movement and the whole existential movement kind of did push to, okay, just don't even bother to look for that objective truth. Like, you know, like you're not going to find it, but, but, but that doesn't have to leave us in the place of despair. Then the call, the deeper call is how then do we consciously and intentionally create meaning? How do we then imbue life as a, as, as a participant in the, in the creative principle, you know, in the print and, and hey, look, we could even say that this is what Freud was talking about when he talked about eros, right? The, the, uh, uh, erotic principle or the life giving or the vitalizing principle that that each of us uh, uh, is tasked with creating the, our own subjective meaning and and developing our own subjective authority. The problem, however, is that the vacuum that was created by the destruction of these previous dogmas of authority has been filled by garbage from the Bullshit. internet that has to do with externalized realities. These are all, look, you know, there's research that indicates that we become more creative well after we're bored, okay? After periods of boredom, that is when we become more creative. How often are we allowed to be bored now? Like really bored. I'm not talking about malaise. I'm not talking about, there's lots of malaise, plenty of malaise <laughs> being filled with likes and dislikes and I got whatever, boxes you know. of it. Yeah. But, you know, uh, so 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 that I think is one of the things that uh, uh, is a deeper call on the, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the evolution of human consciousness in a broader sense. You know, are we now going to allow the uh, exposing uh, uh, that that, uh, that these authorities no longer carry the the uh, the sway that they did? You know, are we going to allow that? To sink in so that we can each develop our own authority or are we just going to defer to the next god you know my joke in the 80s and 90s were that that shopping malls had become the new churches because on sundays people no longer went to churches they then went to shopping malls you know uh uh and all of the i mean like if you look at a, a shopping mall it's like a mega church really you know um uh and now 
particularly with COVID, people are no longer going to shopping malls. Now it's all white. We don't have to have to leave our house, man. People are talking about like, this drives me nuts, man. People are talking about investing in real estate in the metaverse. <laughs> investing in real estate in the metaverse. Like really, really? Last time we were talking about how foolish it is to pretend that we own this earth. Now we're going to try to pretend to own something that only exists in some kind of digital constellation form. It is bizarre, man. Yeah, and you bizarre. get uh, and, and you get your host, your sacrament from the you know the sanctified corn dog at the food court. You know, right? That's right. right. Yeah, so uh, the you know. sanctified corn dog. I'm going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> so so you know so so this is so so this is I think what you know what what we're not good at. We're good at developing technologies that that we are not prepared to use in, in wise ways, okay? So I, I, can, I, I believe that as a species, we're great at developing technology. Our, our capacity to develop technology outpaces our wisdom, okay? Part of the wisdom that we have not internalized with reference to all of this, you know, internet stuff is the fact that it's all empty, you know? Prometheus, the eagle that eats our liver every day is the iPhone. Right, and it's- And the crime was stealing right. fire Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's become it's become a portable Skinner box. That's it. You know, it's just one that we're not living inside. It lives Ooh. outside of us. So, Joe, 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 where are you at now with all these uh, references um, and ideas? Yeah. Oh, I was going to say um, this metaverse <laughs> thing, like, don't get me started on, you know, NFTs and, and that whole thing. Um, You're started. But yeah. it's <laughs> uh oh. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, a, it's interesting the way you put it, because that, that um, really speaks to, uh, I guess, like a larger perspective about this thing that I, I'm seeing a lot of, because I'm online a lot. So like, that might be why I'm seeing the, a lot of this, but like, there's, there's a, a big, you know, uh, faction of, of cryptocurrency people and NFTs and um this whole thing and like uh there's this real like again dogma about it and how this is like the this is the thing that's taking us into the future this is like where history is going um and you know a should it and b like yeah i don't know how much these people have stopped to think like there's nothing actually here <laughs> like you're already just looking at a, a box um, what do you make though joe of the non-fungible token with respect mm -hmm. to the overthrow of a master authority so, i mean there's i'm hinting at something here you get rid of the government get rid of the idea of a regulated consensual a, a, a consensually valued currency that a government, uh, that, that uh, a self-appointed central authority has any control over. Everything right. becomes consensual to the point where Mike Tyson's new <clears throat> NFT got more news yesterday than a dozen other major economic stories. Yeah, well, Mike Tyson's an interesting person to bring up with consent, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Mike's behaved himself for a while now. Yeah. Um... <laughs> As far as yeah, we know, right. yes. allegedly, allegedly, uh -huh. 
<laughs> I like uh, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the uh, so yeah, the NFT thing. I think um, NFTs and cryptocurrency in general, like the idea was to sort of decentralize things, um, but they, it seems like, at least you know, from the information I have, like they they've sort of just recreated all the worst parts of capitalism in uh you know just this less regulated environment where um you know people are still going like going to scam the system and uh you know just make off with a bunch of money while people who like really believed that they were getting in on the ground floor of something real uh end up losing everything um and because of the dogma <laughs> like they still find their way to thinking like oh well next time i just need to do it this way and change this and then I'll, you know um so yeah you know i i don't know i go back and forth a little bit um between whether i'm uh you know uh, a big government socialist or a, you know at heart like an anarchist that i truly want like the end of the state and, and all of that um my my issue is that i i do have a lot of issues with um with state power and with centralized power uh but at the same time there's a lot that i want to happen that you know you might need that centralized power to make happen um and if you deregulate everything and de-state and de-bank everything <laughs> into into true anarchism you might just end up with with like neo-feudalism um with you know these libertarian overlords like taking over their own little enclaves and and uh then you have your own nightmare there. So yeah, like that's that's the thing. It's like it seems as though anytime we try to do this, this uh, uh, let's democratize um, capitalism, <laughs> it just ends up being capitalism. <laughs> um, and there there is this this very um, there is this this sort of Marxist critique you could make of it, which is that uh you know you mentioned a, the dialectic of the spiral earlier web and that made me think because you know i've been reading about marx and i'm finally sort of starting to understand what dialectical materialism means <laughs> um, and uh it's uh that's the thing is marx talked about all of this that you know he didn't predict like you'll have a computer and there'll be bitcoin and stuff but like you know this idea of credit and like imaginary capital and that you will be controlled by this unseen unreal like non uh non-fungible and non-tangible thing <laughs> um and marx was you know a philosopher too and and sort of started to bring things down to earth with these this materialist idea um and uh so yeah i don't know where i just brought us but that's that's well, what i'm thinking made me think joe and somebody else please jump in here that that uh we're talking about currency and 
currency is not just money. Currency is anything that is a medium of exchange, power, language as a currency. Uh, and the underlying theme I think we've been getting to here has been, well, I'm dating it back to the, uh, the beginning of existentialism, you know, the fall of, of the centralized authority of the universe sort of getting, uh, getting deposed or at least uh, questioned heavily. Um, and now you have a world in which we want to remove the government from sources of knowledge all sources of authority, whether it be uh, a knowledge base, the presumption of a higher level of reasoning, uh, the presumption of uh, you know being ordained, um, uh, you know, with with somehow power as a divine representative, all this is 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 thrown in the shitter, you know, and so you have money that is no longer um, related to any authority, take it off the nothing take it but off. the consent. Taking off the gold standard, just to, just to throw that in around the same, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was taking off the gold standard. I forget exactly when in the 30s, I think, you know, like, right. That was like deconstructionism and in taking. I, I didn't think of this before. I think it was originally taken off in, in the 30s and then it was put back on and then Nixon finally took it off or again or something like that. But just, you know, that that uh, kind of divided currency from any like really, really tangible asset, let's say, you know. Um, or yeah. some tangible standard asset or standardizing asset. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no master narrative. There is no master economic pr principle. There is no trust in a central authority that knows better. Right. Right. And we haven't developed a capacity to collaborate well enough to, to uh, uh, you know, to operate without creating another form of authority. So, another you know, capitalism. Yeah. Or, or yeah. What, or, yeah. Another, exactly. Another capitalism, another religion, another, uh, you know, uh, another form of science, whatever it might be, you know. When the system breaks down, who uh, of, of the different political philosophies, whose members are going to end up becoming the armed oppressors who give us the rules? It's going to be a bunch of libertarians. You know, you, you choose the philosophy that suits your temperament to a certain degree. And if what you want is uh, for the government to get its ass out of your affairs, um, that's not you may tell yourself it's it's based on a higher principle. Ultimately, it's an intolerance of uh, anybody else telling you what you ought to do and push comes to shove. And this is my problem with anarchism. Uh, as with most political philosophies, it's just going to be a, a, a vacuum that is filled by the same old shit. That's my fear. But um, <laughs> isn't this also a little bit how, how it goes in terms of like historical trajectories and, and you know, once again, like the, the repetition is never uh, the same, right? So the repetitive yeah. motion is similar, but you always end up at a slightly different spot of the spiral or or whatever fractal image we're using. Like there is some kind of development taking place or development, some kind of change taking place through every uh, repetitive motion through the, through the system or the spiral or whatever we use. So in a way, I guess that, you know, through large historical epochs, things have gone like this, right? You know, things are being built up, then they 
are being destroyed or or taken down or whatever is the right word and then something new comes up so i'd like to go back to this with because i think there's some interesting topics that we are i like the idea of embodiment i like the idea of materiality from what joe spoke of materialism like materiality in the sense of like anchoring gold to currency or you know connecting something ideas with body um you know uh, matter with with intellectual um, property and so on so i think those are kind of the key key elements that i've heard that we've sketched out so maybe i'll pass it back to you web in terms of this embodiment like would you like to elaborate a little bit on that concept whatever it means to you and in this context of science and spirituality for example yes yeah, uh sure um well okay so embodiment um, how can I say this? Um, my experience, okay, so my experience, I'll, I'll just talk about my experience, actually. I guess that's the best way to talk about it. My experience, um, uh, as I have developed through life, when I was a child, I was an unbelievably uh, 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 enthusiastic, uh, hyperactive, you know, very visceral child you know like I was a very very I would say a very embodied child as children tend to be you know when when children are born you know that they're born in their bodies that it's just a very it's very natural you know they don't they're not thinking about a, 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 let's say a distinction between mind and body or, or anything like that you know what I found is that particularly once I once I started hitting adolescence my experience of being embodied kind of fractured in a way Okay, um, I guess that's the way, but like looking back, that's kind of the best way to put it. I found that in certain ways, I stayed quite embodied, almost in a dissociated way. So for example, with sexuality, you know, sexuality is a very, very powerful uh, physiological, uh, 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 for me, you know, for, for I think most people, for me, it was a very, very powerful physiological experience and very visceral draw. But in a lot of other areas of my life, I was, I kind of lived the life of the mind. You know, um, and it was it was of premium import as I went to high school and as I went to college and as, as I started graduate school to develop the to, to develop my mind, to develop my capacity to think, to develop my capacity to uh, to reason. And there's a way in which that became dissociative uh, after a period of time. What I found is that the development of my intellect. Uh, kind of uh, led me to be less aware of my emotions. I disregarded my emotions, you know, more. My emotions were more acted out than actually embodied and lived. Um, and so, you know, um, uh, you know, I mentioned before I started meditating when I was about 19. I believe that at that point, I, I recognized that there was kind of this dissociation that I was going through. However, when I first meditated, it was almost like I was doubling down on becoming less embodied. You know, um, which, you know, I was almost meditating in a way to become like pure consciousness. Meditation being... as an anti-materialist. That's right. That's right. This is the whole transcendental meditation thing, right? They, so you, so meditation is about transcendence. It's about becoming more than human. It's about getting away from being human, getting away from some of those uh, sexual feelings that I felt maybe dominated by excessively, you know, and, and, and those kinds of things. And so you know, uh, and so really just kind of, I would say as a, as a, um, a gradual process of, uh, uh, you know, becoming a father and, you know, kind of having, you know, going through a period of my life where I was drinking too much and, you know, starting to, uh, recognize 
that I was actually out of touch with my body uh, and out of touch with my emotions in ways uh, that led me to feel out of balance. Um, uh, and so, uh, and, and uh, um, you know, and so my own experience has been really critical to feel uh, connected to my body, you know, instead of living, you know, living in this kind of intellectual realm, um, really to be aware of my emotions, to know what's going on with me, you know, and, and still it's a struggle, you know, like anger. Anger is still an emotion that's very, very difficult for me. It is, you know, it's a, it's an emotion that I tried to renounce when I was meditating. Like, I, you know, it was like one of, you know, again, 19, naive, you know, there's this view of aggression. Like you just, you sh just shouldn't be aggressive. So I'll just try to transcend anger, you know? And then there are plenty of religious texts that tell you, you can do that. You know, there are plenty that say, just breathe this much and do this and you'll transcend all your negative emotions. It's fine. Don't worry about it. That's all bypass. So there can be spiritual bypass. There can be psychological bypass. There can be scientific bypass. And I think that that all of these areas, you know, become bypassed when they ultimately neglect to put the to, to put the onus on each of us to experience life from our own subjective perspective, including our sensations, our perceptions, our emotions, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, all of the different aspects that make us human and make us real, you know. Um, now, in uh, this world of, um, of the, as you say, in touch with our own, our own, our own, well, this is also the era of uh, special attention to intersubjectivity. And yes. the body. Oh, yes, As a matter of fact, you look at Jessica Benjamin, among others, um, the body, Joyce McDougall, other important people in this area, um, look at both the intersubjective world and the body, the flesh, uh, the notion that the body is the unconscious or sure. vice versa. So how do you work that now? Now that the intersubjective and the boundaries between individuals has become seriously um, relativized at the very least, what do we do to get out of this one person notion of meditation, you know, myself as the window into being? I mean, that's a, I think that's a good question, but it's probably difficult to answer that question simply intellectually in some senses. I don't mean for that to be a cop out, but um, uh, so, so when I'm working with people, okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, one of the ways that I pay attention to counter transference or what's going on in the room is by paying attention to my somatic experience. And also what I could, what I call parasomatic experiences. You know, last time I talked about feeling energy, my, my parasomatic experiences, uh, as I said before, they're reliable. I don't understand them, but they're reliable. When I can feel sensations around another person's body, you know, that is a, a form of attunement to this relational field, or it's almost like, you know, we, we, we have this intersecting, we each have this, this, you know, this field, you know, and when we're together, we have our fields kind of intersection, uh, intersecting, and we, we're holding each other in these, in these uh, fields of consciousness that are then, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of merged, not exactly merged, together. You know, it's it's like it's not a full merger. It's a it's a uh, again, it's kind of a third. You know, yeah, um, exactly. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, I think so. Bodies, bodies do speak in a way, right? They communicate, yet be that language is not 
the, the vehicle they use, right? And yes. Per definition, it's, and I think, you know, having a small kid on my own, he's two now, I, I think in those terms, it's so natural. I mean, the amount of hours you spend cuddling, he's sleeping in our bed, he, you know, he comes to the world through hearing the heartbeat of his, of his mom, you know, like there's all these registers within us that instantly and pre-linguistically decodes and reacts to another person's body language, posture, breathing patterns, maybe more than anything, eye contact, uh, small winks. And, and so, so you take in that uh, somehow and, and make a prediction or, or you, know, you come up with some kind of model of where you think you are. Mm -hmm. And and then you start speaking and I, and from my own experience in in therapy I think that that third the the Ogden third it very much relates to that body experience of something becomes bigger than just the two of us when mm -hmm. we feel that we're in sync with with that kind of bodily experience it could even be moments of silence where that thing third position emerges and that third position also enable us both as as a dyad to look at that from the outside. Like we could both kind of extrapolate ourselves and talk together about us as a team or as an analytic dyad, right? So that becomes possible from this third state uh, that, that you both can reflect upon that commonality or that shared space um, and go back and forth kind of, you can go into something and, and, you know, let's say you have an argument where you're a therapist, you could say, okay, I'm now angry at you because of this and that. But you could also then shift and say, look at what just happened, right? Like the two of us were arguing about this uh, and you do that from a third position in a way. So my intuition says that the body is, is crucial to these aspects. And, and I'm wondering what the kind of uh, homologue could be in a more like group level or we talk about society and politics, like that material. A body now. politic. Why do we use yeah. that language? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's well, probably a lot of people who have, I guess. I don't know. Uh, sure. But I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like Foucault and some of those people, they spoke a lot about the body as a kind of tattoo of, of what a person has lived through, right? Like the, the injuries or, or the, the injustices of, of society is carried by every person's body in a way, right? Like uh, it's, it leaves its traces there. Like uh, the body keeps the score. Right? That's another one of those uh, trauma uh, Basel van der Kolk book that we spoke about on some episode. The body is registered all that we have lived through in a way. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if there are other good uh, associations to that body politic. Like what would be the, what would be the body to build on, so to speak, in a well, body? It's tricky. It's tricky also, I think, because it has to do with awareness. Like, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, Martin, had to do with dyad. And, you mm. know, when, I, when I'm doing therapy, you know, with a single person, I'm, uh, again, to get into the zone, like I, I now move in, and I think probably a lot of us do this, we move, you know, we move into a certain form of receptivity, a certain form of consciousness, where we are receptive in a way that we would not necessarily normally be in, you know, uh, if we're driving to work or if we're going to the grocery store, like those kinds of things. Okay. Now, if I'm teaching a class and, and particularly if I'm doing a meditative exercise with the class, I also can open those channels and feel like it, it, I can close my eyes when I'm doing a group meditation and I can feel in the room who is deep in a meditation, who is anxious in the room. 
like I can feel different, you know, it's, you know, I can feel this stuff. Now, uh, uh, um, so, the, so again, this is something that I've done enough to the point that I've paid attention. And, and when I was out in New Mexico doing a lot of these types of exercises, this sense developed much more clearly and much more uh, reliably. Now, how does that translate to what you're talking about with the collective, that becomes a, a huge area of ambiguity because what it points to is that we can be injured in ways that we're not even aware of. We can be affected in ways that we're not even aware of. We can be, you know, uh, uh, that if we are connected to this collective, which I presume that we are, um, uh, you know, uh, we can uh, have a dream or an experience that may that we may completely misinterpret because our frame of reference is so, let's say, egocentric or so, you know, so focused on, well, what, what was that about, about me, you know, instead of what was that about, about the collective, like these kinds of things. I think that becomes very tricky. You know, I think it becomes very, very tricky to know how even to decipher this stuff. So then the question is, how do we develop an anchor point? How do we develop a way of anchoring this, you know, uh, let's say the body politic, how can we, and, and I think that, I, look, I think the culture is trying to do this in different ways, but uh, I, I mean, you know, or, or at least American culture is trying to do this in different ways. Talking about critical race theory, you know, like that's the, that's the big thing now, or that over the last year or year and a half, critical race theory has been the big thing. Do we talk with our young kids about, you know, the fact that we have a racist history as Americans or do we act like if we talk about our kids that somehow we're going we're going to induce guilt in them and they just can't tolerate it as as children? I mean, this is a huge uh, uh, area that is being talked about in different school boards across the country. Different laws are being passed about banning critical race theory. That, I think, is an example of not only uh, an area where people have literally historically been traumatized and there are literally groups who continue to carry the marks of that trauma. Mm -hmm. intergenerationally okay but now it's like well can we even engage this in a way that that allows us to heal this as a culture in some kind of way you know look at the parallel and look at to me this this is proof of concept uh on so many levels um we shift the discussion to the body and at the same time we shift it to the collective and the challenge the huge dilemma, trilemma, quadrilemma of, um, of finding a language, finding some sort of a currency that enables people to engage over, on the one hand, the body, the most, uh, well, it is our corporeality. It is, it is our locus where I am here. Okay. I can say, I love you, man, or I care about everyone, but there is no demonstrating this except through action that can be uh, that that can be witnessed through the senses, the perceptions of other people. And yet, what else have we been talking about here? Um, what do we do about the body? The body is the single greatest um, locus of repression, of the 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 the, the nexus of desire and shame and sin 
and procreation and murder, destruction, rape. Um, it is the, the uh, ground zero of all kinds of trauma as well as transcendence. So on the one hand, you have the problem of talking about what is it that binds people? I mean, Jung is essential, okay? The collective unconscious, but the concept does nothing for people who still need a currency. They need to see where is the bolt of lightning? Where's the thread that connects me to a billion other people? Can't show me? Well, then it's bullshit. But look at what happens with the body and critical race theory. To me, critical race theory is the closest thing to an accurate representation of the history of racism and, and other, other nasty isms. And yet you don't simply have people um, debating its validity or debating points within it. You have people becoming um, enraged um, that the denial that people are now treating critical race theory as if it were sodomy or the way sodomy used to be thought of, you know, it's, it's got some real advantages, frankly. Um, I mean, critical race theory and sodomy, that's not where I want to go right now. The point is, why would an idea, why would a collection of ideas that reflect what is to me a self-evident fact of history be the source of so much rage and repression and denial um, uh, as if it were a form of original sin. What is it where this is, this is the body politic and its repressions mm -hmm. as opposed yeah. to the body corporeal. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, in this, in this case, at least, like, people are being told that it is a lot of things that it isn't, and um, that, you know, uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's also like a, a legal theory that's like more of a, you know, postgraduate thing that is not being taught in elementary schools, but like, even if it is like something influenced by this theory is is ends up in a, an elementary school lesson um yeah it's it's uh it's it's just uh insanity it's it's again this dogmatic uh, i really latched onto that word but uh <laughs> this dogmatic approach um and uh yeah we we have um this whole thing, you know, we were talking about the dichotomy of science and spirituality before. This isn't so much spirituality, but it's, uh, you know, there's this, uh, these opposing forces of like a misinformation complex uh, in this country versus, you know, I believe in science, which is a little, like, I thought of this early on when we were talking about so, sort of the, um, limitations or like the sort of overreach of science and so and it was like yeah i think i don't i i understand why people do it but i th i don't think science was meant to be something that we go like i i believe science it's like well no no i believe like the rigorous research that's been done in biology and i believe the you know the conclusions reached by good research in uh oceanography or whatever you know it's like yeah like those 
it's a good thing, but it's also a framework and not a dogma. Right, a right, a method and a framework, and yeah. and a method and a framework that a lot of times people overly simplify when they go to interpret results. You know, right. so so usually a result will be stated. You know, um, uh, like whatever it might be. You know, um, okay. So here's an you know uh, uh, you know uh, here's an example. A recent study indicated that uh, kids who were exposed to cannabis in utero had a greater likelihood of having attentional problems, uh, uh, some uh, issues with aggression, like these kinds of things. It's, it's a, you know, uh, a, a study with a relatively small sample um, and it hasn't been replicated, but it's a finding nonetheless, okay? So, so one person can read that and say, okay, well, you know, um, uh, there's a finding from this one study that uh, exposure to cannabis in the womb may you know, may contribute to the development of, of attentional problems, aggression, and anxiety. Um, and another person might read that and say, um, well, you know, if a, if, if a child is exposed to cannabis in the uterine, in utero, they will become aggressive and anxious, you know? And so, so then, you know, a lot of times when, when research is interpreted, it is made to sound more definitive in a way than the research really is. Research is about finding trends you know, particularly applied research, it's about finding trends. It's not about how does finding a trend answers. become dogma. How does a trend become dogma? Right. And well, why? Because we, right. Well, because because people are really good at overly simplifying reality, right? I mean, look, we're good at at absorbing bullet points. We, you know, we particularly, you know, talk about emotional stuff. Particularly if we're anxious or we're angry, it is really, really easy to overly simplify reality. So I think that I think that we are wired actually in some ways to deny the level of complexity that we actually face in this life. You know, one way um, we do that is what is dogma, but a mandatory idea mm -hmm. or a, a an idea or word uh, concept that is treated as though it is concrete, as though it were it's true. As uh, it's true. It non, an undebatable fact, a true fact, and people leap to mm -hmm. we hunger for it yes. because trends are unsatisfying. Right. Trends cannot be grabbed by the body. The body can only grab an object, can only bite real food, can only have sex with something embodied. Mm -hmm. We need something solid and mm -hmm. especially when there is a paucity, an, a vacuum of trustworthy uh, ideas, especially when you talk about the iPhone, the fact that there is this now this profusion, the internet, this profusion of, of half digested, unvetted notions. Even those of us who go about <laughs> some kind of scholarship with some degree of sincerity, on the one hand, I, I couldn't have done my dissertation or the book that came after it if I didn't have access to a lot of material much faster than if I had to go to the stacks of the library. On the other hand, I had to filter out 99 point, you know, how many decimal places uh, percent of the bullshit that kept finding its way onto my screen. After a while, you give up. And people want dogma, among other things, because they can't handle uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It reduces yeah, I think anxiety. That's true. And right. I think it also goes to, I mean, it's also picked up by the machine, I would say, somewhat mm-hmm. abstractly. You know, and I think of like, since I'm studying psychology now, like I think of the term of evidence, for example, evidence based treatment versus non evidence based treatments and so on, the whole debate around that. But I mean, one point of critique in there is also how the machine gets. Um, um, fed by itself in a way that the, the, the studies that are taken out on certain premises becomes easier to, to evaluate. So they then get more funding for, for renew studies. So there is a whole kind of loop where like insurance money and pharma and like everything becomes geared to solidify this track of like, we do studies this way. We, we conduct therapy based on these manualized treatments we give recommendations for diagnosis based on this, and this then becomes evaluated. I mean, it's not easy for, let's say, hey, I want to evaluate, you know, 10-year psychoanalytic processes and see uh, how do you even fit that into the to the kind of machine that has been built. And I think this goes for many ways of our society, how data is used and how the surfing we do on the internet gets picked up and then served back to us with propositions of what Netflix shows we want to watch and we do watch mm-hmm. them and we do like them. So the whole thing becomes like a self-feeding mechanism in a way. And that's why I like this idea of a metaphor of like grounding yourself in the body, like feeling what's going on inside me, using the human elements of perception and registering your own experience. And I like that term of like an anchor point that you threw out there, Webb. And whatever that could be in, in social fabric, I don't know. But perhaps a term like stillness like I read something interesting. I think you'd like this, Dan. It was a Jungian guy, a Swedish guy. I can find his name for you later. But he wrote about the dialectic between, on the one hand, integration. So let's say assimilating, integrating your dreams, your history, your personal the stories, and trying to mold your own kind of understanding of yourself. But if you take that too far, it would be too egotistical. You would become completely self-absorbed and Maybe that's an element of what's going on in society now. But his idea that I haven't really thought about that much was it's equally important to anchor that process of, of, let's say, understanding your dreams and as much as you can about yourself and so on with with its opposite, namely stillness, you know, meditating on an ocean or a plane or, you know, I'm not a good meditation practitioner, so I wouldn't know. But, But I like that idea of like contrasting constructive ego work if we put it that way with a, with an opposite which is basically taking in stillness well the, st- mean, the, yeah. the stillness the stillness also keeps us honest i mean yeah, actually exactly. you know because because we're really good at creating images yeah. that are convenient or that we like to see mm-hmm. or you know like we have a lot of self-serving biases if yeah. the stillness allows us to feel it actually allows us to feel into the authenticity mm-hmm. you know yeah absolutely exactly. Yeah. And how am I right? I actually want to ask you about this, Martin, because you've been immersed in uh, the DSM and what we consider to be evidence, the evidence that is um, most accessible and amenable to uh, group consensus. Um, what kind of evidence is it? And is there any place for the evidence of that still mind regarding its own experience? See, the joke is we turn it around. You know, I, I believe in uh, practice-based evidence. Mm. I don't trust evidence-based practice because I find it to be average at best. It is nothing but that which can be. 
consensually validated by a whole bunch of people who are not paying attention to themselves. Mm. Right. Good it point. is, it I is. Mean, it, yeah. I, I know that there is on a general level, I think we, we studied last week that the interreliability of the DSM is 40%. So it's yeah, not it's, very yeah. high. It's so awful. You know, it's awful. Four, out of, four out of 10 would diagnose the same diagnosis, diagnosis on a patient on average. But, but, you know, that doesn't say that the alternatives are better. Uh, but to your question about the stillness, I know there is some kind of newer trends and evidence going for these kind of mindfulness, you know, the ACT acronym, Acceptance Commitment Therapy, which is basically a westernized version of, of mindfulness. And they, they do that a lot on a stress diagnosis and people who are facing, you know, those kind of problems and they have come out quite good that's the only one i know but but to the evidence of a silent mind in in a, in a western psychiatric language i think the act therapy is is big over here in sweden it's booming like uh, and and it's basically for all these people that have to work too hard so they become stressed and and they don't know what to do with themselves so they get some kind of guidance in accepting their themselves i'm sure they work with the body with feeling what's going on and allowing yourself to to feel whatever's is there, basically. Uh, that's the only one I, I can come up with. But it's a good question you ask, I think. It would be very interesting to look at that. Like, what could stillness actually mean for an individual, for groups of people? How could society be built on ideas that stillness is needed, also in terms of planning and city planning? And, you know, what, what could stillness look, at, look like in a modern, intersubjective, kind of full-on tempo life where stillness would be integrated as a as a part of of living that life i think it's an interesting question i'm going to take that with me i like it yeah not, let me a, let me give you an addendum to it let, let me just uh real quickly what if you just a little thought experiment what if you imagined a time in the near future in which the evidence-based research, the research that is geared towards getting the most efficacious treatment approaches were conducted by people, all of whom uh, were raised and uh, acculturated um, in a Buddhist mindful um, way of being. What would the evidence that you were discussing in class be as opposed to what it is now? Yeah, I think yeah, it's it's a good point. <laughs> um, and the, the, the other thing, the the other thing in terms of stillness, what another way that we could dichotomize this, okay? And I think this may point to why it may be difficult for us even to do this kind of research in Western cultures. We're talking about, I, I, you know, we could think of this as a tension between doing and being, right? Doing and being. So if stillness is more being. You know, uh, uh, Western culture, and we can connect this back to capitalism. Capitalism has no tolerance for stillness. If you're still, you're not going to buy anything, right? If you're about being, you don't need the next big thing. That's all about doing, you know? So, so I think that one of the things, even if you look at the word meditation, okay, like what, and this is, this is a problem, I think, culturally. The word meditation is about thought, you know, like the translation of meditation. If you look at the etymology of contemplation, Meditation, any Western word that gets it at what uh, Zen Buddhists would call sitting, they just sit, you know, like, <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm going to go sit. Okay, fine. You know, so, so, uh, uh, you know, I think this is a fundamental obstacle that we face kind of in our, in our collective, um, uh, uh, our, you know, Western cultures tend to be very, uh, uh, um, you know, identified with doing. 
you know, it's all about doing, you know, um, it's not about, it's not about being, where, where does being get you? How does that put food on your table? How does that, you know, how does that uh, get your investments to go up? <laughs> you know, um, in terms of the DSM, one of the things that I also wanted to say, Dan, I don't know if, if you guys are aware of this in 2012, right before the DSM five uh, uh, was, was published, it was published in 2013. Um, it, the 10, the same 10 personality disorders have been a part of the DSM, I think, since it was maybe first started. You know, schizoid was developed in the early 50s, schizotypal in the early 50s. OK, they talked about eliminating five of the personality disorders and uh, and they decided not to. Uh, in the process of navigating this, two international members of the personality disorder uh, subcommittee walked out saying that the decisions for the DSM were not being made on the basis of empirical evidence, that they were be made, being made on the basis of political considerations. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there. That's dogma. Again, it's dogma. What's the difference between schizotypal personality disorder and, uh, 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 and mild autistic spectrum disorder? You know, I mean, that's, I think, you know, some people have investigated that empirically, but I think that that's something that could be investigated a, a lot more clearly because are we talking about is there an overlap is there an overlap between schizotypal and not only and autistic spectrum is, you know? not only is there an overlap web but do you remember the three letters that we used as shorthand for schizotypal it's an acronym an insulting no. one no i don't actually the funny looking kid really ah that was, and it wasn't just from one professor, it was one, it was a particular uh, uh, Derner professor and he was channeling, you know, another little psychoanalytic trope that, first of all, think about um, as a joke, what truth it reflects about the kind of thought process that at the very least can infect uh, the, the discussion of diagnoses, the sort of thing that would make people walk out, which is more to it. Um, the funny looking kid was meant to be the differential, uh, the, 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 the um, variable that enabled us to uh, differentiate between autism and schizotypal because wow. the schizotypal were weird. Wow. And honestly, if you look at the, um, the, the criteria, and Martin, please correct. I don't know. You, you're you're fresher on this, but if you look at the criteria for schizotypal, they all are um, rather more uh, clinical sounding ways of saying um, bizarre, mm -hmm. strange, nutty, wacky, weird. Yeah, and I think that, that really was really solid I, clinical stuff. Right, and yeah. I think that I think schizotypal was formulated in 1952 or 1956. I mean, it's you know, it it, it was again. These are like theoretical formulations. These were not, you know, the, these are like theoretical constructs that were born out of psychoanalytic thought. These were not, you know, uh, I don't think researched adequately, and certainly haven't been uh, subjected to the level of of research that needs to be done. Like I said, a little bit of work has been done on this. And it seems like the differential between schizotypal and autistic spectrum has to do with a person's subjective, reported subjective sense of self. You know, there's a little bit of a difference, but still, you know, it just raises questions, you know, what people forget. And, and this is the other thing. If we're honest about what we're doing in science, we're dealing with constructs. We're dealing with invisible realities that we create and that we, uh, we either create or discover it's somewhere between creating and discovering, you know, and we do the same thing in, in religion. 
okay? In religion, we're dealing with constructs, a construct of God, a construct of forgiveness, a construct of love, you know? Um, uh, uh, now I'm gonna go a little far afield because I know that we're, we're running a little short of time, but one of the things that I've been fascinated with recently, I guess, even before the, the new Matrix movie came out, I was just kind of reflecting on the fact that, you know, one of the big areas of debate now has been, are we in a simulated reality, right? Um, uh, and, you know, like, you know, people like Elon Musk are saying that probably we are because, you know, if we've seen this much movement in our lifetime or this much development in our lifetime, it wouldn't take a whole lot more to, for this all to be a simulated reality. How is that much different from the idea of, being on earth to go to heaven. You know, if heaven is the ultimate reality, we're, this is a simulated reality anyway. You know, so, so now we're, we're simply repackaging an ancient idea about uh, uh, the fact that we're really living for another world. Um, uh, and we're just repackaging, repackaging it in, you know, kind of uh, contemporary technological terms. Um, so that's just an idea I kind of wanted to throw out there also <laughs> as we're, you know. So it's starting to be about to, to wrap this up. Um, <laughs> Joe, where, 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 what are your thoughts? I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, kind of speaking to the that simulation theory point, um, it's just, it's based on a few uh, assumptions that would have to be true which is fine to do in like theoretical, you know, or hypothetical, I guess, um, uh, science and, and other areas. But like, uh, yeah, I, I, I watched a video about this recently made by an anarchist, interestingly enough, um, <laughs> that, was, uh, that examined it, like what these people were saying, like Musk and, and other, uh, other morons. Um, <laughs> and um it was like, yeah, you, if you actually look into what they're saying, it's like, yeah, if these seven things are true that we don't know are true, <laughs> then there is some calculable possibility of that being the case. Uh, but also, like you're saying, like it is worth considering are we just repackaging an old idea? Um, and there's not, much reason to to really worry about it at all <laughs> how's it different how's it right how's well, it different from re reincarnation yeah. you know like uh, i yeah. i have an idea namely isn't it something that after all the scientific uh advancement um all of the the revelations of the last couple of thousand years the last 50 years the notion that um, the universe is a simulated reality that somehow follows the laws of information theory is promulgate, promulgated by information theorists who essentially do what was always done, namely project the creator of the, the, the creation and the creator of the universe as number one, being an entity, an entity who is like us follows similar principles to the ones we're interested in, but is way better at it than us. Mm -hmm. And that there is ultimately a truer world out there, yes. that there's more than just this. And I don't care if you're Elon Musk with countless billions and your own fleet of spaceships, 
the desire for something more and a big daddy who is kind of your role model. You're aiming to be like that, but he's way bigger and better at it than you. Simulated reality, that's the fucking best you can do. <laughs> Just a bigger video game? Come on. Well, right, and that and that's the counterpoint to embodiment, right? Because because, you know, if if you if we are truly living embodied lives, this is the source of our data. This is the source of our data, not some hypothetical model of how we could be living in a computer simulation or that, you know, or that, that this could be our eighth time or 300th time in an incarnation because we're in the process of, of traversing, you know, uh, uh, souls. Now, I say that with a full receptivity to the possibility of reincarnation. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> you know, like, you know, who knows? But but these parallels are, are notable. They're definitely very. Definitely I think that that temporal dislodge that you guys talk about—that everything is supposed to happen after the next quarter over there—you will get to paradise, or you will get to the simulated universe, or you will have a nice body after you've bought all these products and exercised on this new bike, uh, and so on. I mean, that's really that's really a central problem. And I think, like you said, Webb, the counterpoint of that would be: let's go sit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, isn't it, isn't it, uh, who is it? I think Jesus tells one of the other, there is a robber or something. There's like one of the other guys who are being strung up at the same time. I think he's a thief or something who asks Jesus, like, can you bring me to paradise with you or something? Mm -hmm. And he says, yes, it's already here or something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea there being, as I understood it, it's like, no, it's not, you're not going somewhere other. You know, mm -hmm. It's already accessible to you, uh, mm -hmm. more or less in terms of in here, I guess, right? So between Elon Musk and that story, I think that story has more, uh, <laughs> more salience to it. <laughs> and what is, if you had to sum it up, yeah. if you had to sum, sum up uh, if something on humanity's tombstone could mm. be, is this all there is? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because everything is an answer to that question. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's the same oh. damn set of answers, no matter how <laughs> much better our toys get. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, right. our, our podcast is all there is, so you should subscribe <laughs> <laughs> at anchor.fm. <laughs> Trust yeah. Joe the Anarchist. He knows. <laughs> it's nice to what you need to do again, Webb. Thanks for yeah, right to, Absolutely. Yeah. My Thank pleasure. you, My Dr. Pleasure. Garrison. You got it. My Martin and Joe. See you next time. Great, Great right. talking Thanks, with guys. you guys. See ya. Thanks yeah. for helping us reel it in. All right. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye.